my god, I'm so stressed. I have so much work this weekend. I have to submit the common application, but I'm scared to because my resume looks short. Every AP teacher thinks their class is the only class. My A plus just became an A. I'm literally going to cry. Should I join more clubs or run for student council? What would look better to colleges? My family won't stop harping me about college. I can't take it anymore. I hate math and I'm never going to use it in my life. Time for another brutal period of AP calculus just to get into college. I'm going to kill myself. Why did I choose to take AP World History? Oh, yeah, to get into college. Wish I could take art, but I want to look smart, so I can't. I need a lifelong nap from all this overexertion. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. I think there are some things we all need to know. Huh? Look, there's no denying that there is work involved in the college admissions process. Long before filling out applications, students have to plow through an entire high school career filled with classes, after-school activities, standardized tests, and more. And in case you forgot, I am a junior in high school, so I get it. In fact, right now as I am recording this episode, my May AP exams are looming closer. It's undeniable that these exams are challenging and I'm stressed by my desire to do well. Add on to that all my extracurriculars, and it's not surprising I seldom have free time. But what I know now that I didn't know when I was an anxious freshman is how overblown these pressures regarding colleges are. It's a widely accepted fact that the college admissions process makes up one of the most challenging and nerve-wracking time periods for adolescents. But while there's clear evidence that it's nerve-wracking, it's for the wrong reasons not because of the demands of the process, but because of the social pressures distorting it. Think about the things that make us anxious. What our friends and family will think of our choice of college. What school name will get to flaunt on social media. How intelligent we can make ourselves seem to others. Many of our stress-inducing actions, such as piling on a rigorous course load of seven APs, are in response to social pressures like these rather than our own understanding of college requirements. Unfortunately, as we realized in episode 2, just because these so-called realities are made of faulty social perceptions doesn't mean they don't have real impacts on us. So today, through exclusive interviews and research synthesis, we will identify where our reality has been misinformed, debunk these inaccurate social perceptions, and reduce their toxic influence on us. When all is said and done, we will be confident in saying that it doesn't matter where you go to college, it's the person you are that determines success, and that our obsession with college admission is not the fault of a corrupt system. It's our society that has distorted the difficulty. Because right now, our tendency to accept misleading social pressures and propaganda has exaggerated the difficulty of the college admissions process to induce stress far beyond what it should. And that has to change.
I would first like to address peer pressure. A student's choice to undergo unnecessary strain in the name of college admission often comes from a fear of what their friends and parents will think. Humans, in their nature, are very susceptible to peer and familial pressure. And these pressures are everywhere. In episode one, we identified how a rise in snowplow parents shifted American values. Parents see children as moldable and hence work to ensure their child is perfect by micromanaging them. But in episode one, we also discovered the danger of this micromanagement. Parents rely on distorted facts to push their children toward unattainable college goals. These distorted facts come from unreliable sources, like the U.S. News and World Report's annual college ranking list we discussed during episode two. Nevertheless, families across the country trusted to help guide their decisions. This means that teens, ever so susceptible to external pressure, are being bombarded with error-filled opinions of excellence that inappropriately overwork them. These false ideals are then echoed in their actions. The toxic ideologies travel from home to school to social media and more. Mr. Michael Oligmuller can attest to this manifestation of unhealthy pressures in our daily lives. As the head of the college counseling department at NSU University School, Mr. Oligmuller has heard his fair share of outlandish beliefs students have regarding the college admissions process. He is extremely experienced. Before his administrative position at NSU University School in Florida, he worked in schools in Indiana, North Carolina, Maryland, and Virginia for 27 years. His experience in the field across the country has allowed him to observe student and family interactions over a long period of time. Every day, he is in charge of meeting with juniors and seniors and their families to guide them through their college admissions process, from applications to essays to decision-making. It's safe to say he's watched many students on their journey to college. When I interviewed Mr. Oligmuller in October of 2019, he was in the heat of college application season for the graduating class of 2020. So, bonus for us, his answers to my questions combine his past with the freshest data. I recorded this interview on my phone, so I am going to play excerpts from it that I think best address the topic at hand. Oh, I think one of the biggest trends is students do seem a lot more stressed. A lot of what's going on in the students' lives to that point comes, you know, sort of comes into, you know, this funnel of the, the college admission process, you know. The, the friends piece um, of that, I think it might be related to the growth in the rankings, which started with the U.S. News and World Report. But every year I have some students who will sit in here, sometimes I'm very sure you are, um, and feeling very anxious over the fact that they've put their list together, they've applied, and then they're discussing where they're interested in going to college with their friends, and their friends will say, well, aren't you applying to any better schools? Or why aren't you applying to schools that have better rankings? And so I've found over the year, with each passing year, I seem to have to do more and more assurance 
um, because you're sitting in front of me, I'll use your name, you know, where I will say, Hannah, your search is about you. So it almost seems like this anxiety is created from a culture of their peers who are pressuring them to want to go to these better schools. Like they feel that they're not good enough when taken as themselves, they're doing the right thing for them. Yeah, I think that external pressure is huge. Um, And I think it's a corollary of the consumer culture of the U.S. Can you elaborate on that? Um, Meaning that, you know, it's not about buying a... Um, you know, this particular blue polo shirt, but that, you know, that it has to be a certain brand name. And, um, you know, how people in the U.S. Um, want to be viewed as a result of the cars they drive or the, the, the homes that they live in or which clubs they may belong to or, you know, what their their job is or, you know, even where they, they go to school. The college becomes a sticker on the car, yes, something to yes. be proud about. Yeah, you're sort of another kind of consumable in a way. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, a, a status symbol. Uh, because one of the things I hear the most from students early on in the process is I don't want to end up at a school nobody's heard of. The process itself is simple. Let me explain to you what we do here. Child fills out a piece of paper, child sends in a piece of paper, college sends back a piece of paper. That sounds she so said, simplistic. Yeah. She said, that's what we do. That's <laughs> what we help the children with. Just to kind of sum up that solution, it sounds like to me the best way to tackle this college admissions process is to stay focused on yourself and to almost block out these cultural perceptions. Because in essence, if we stay true to ourselves the actual application is not so difficult. It's when we have these other factors that are really harming us. Yes. Okay. I should have just said that at the beginning and said, (laughs) okay, we're done. (laughs) Thank you for summing that up beautifully. The most general but significant takeaway from that conversation is this. Social pressures exist and are very important to students and their decisions. Here's why we need to focus on this. I can't promise that this podcast can instantly produce confident people who aren't affected by others, but I can assist in boosting self-esteem by adjusting your mindset. In this case, it's realizing that many of our grievances about the college admissions process are rooted in cultural perceptions rather than the process itself. So many of the comments, questions, complaints, and feelings we express to our counselors are products of social pressures and perceptions. Mr. Oligmuller just conveyed that when he said many students find troubles arise when their personal desires conflict with the opinions of their peers. This is so important. It means we can't validly argue that the college admissions process is stressful because real professionals in the field are confirming that our stress comes from factors outside of the process itself. So, while our stress is still very real, it can be easily eliminated. What we need to do is discredit the false reality that we're living in and make our decisions based off of real facts. Here's the goal. 1. Identify the perpetrators of the warped perceptions. Snowplow parents, faulty rhetoric, ranking systems. Two, 
understand why they are incorrect, something we uncovered in episode 2. 3. Do your best to ignore these pressures. Do so by allowing these pressures to have less of a bearing over your decisions. That way, their impact over your college admissions journey will have significantly lessened. 4. Maintain this state of happiness and continue to grow confidence. Slowly, the scales will tip and these pressures will lose their influential power because you will have recognized their flaws and made decisions that better suit you. If those four steps felt too overwhelming, don't fear. We'll look at some solutions in depth during episode 5. For now, the key is to understand that difficulties pertaining to college admission are not the fault of the literal college admissions process. Rather, it's the culture of misperceptions surrounding the process that brings such stressful consequences. Do you see now why this episode is titled Difficulty Debunked? It's because, together with field professionals, we're pinpointing what's difficult in our lives and understanding why it doesn't have to be that way. Just now, we realized that the stress we thought was coming from a restrictive college admissions process is actually coming from the misinformed minds of our communities. And this debunking spree doesn't stop here. Another issue is a display of distorted statistics by colleges. While many colleges are actually turning to a more holistic analysis of one's application, students still feel that they need to do everything, both academic and extracurricular, to impress colleges. Colleges, aware of society's emphasis on prestigious schools, attempt to make themselves seem more elite by strategically presenting their statistics in a way that makes admission seem harder than it actually is. This makes them appear more selective and hence boost their U.S. News ranking. As colleges exploit propaganda techniques, student stress heightens. The New York Times researched this phenomenon in response to record low acceptance rates from Harvard and Stanford. 5.9% and 5.07% respectively. In their 2018 article, for accomplished students, reaching a good college isn't as hard as it seems. The New York Times explains the truth about acceptance statistics. Statistics like Harvard and Stanford's have come to dominate the national narrative, with each new batch of even more minuscule success rates fueling a collective sense that getting into a good college has become a brutal Hunger Games-style tournament. That story is wrong. For well-qualified students, getting into a good college isn't difficult. The fact that everyone believes otherwise shows how reliance on a single set of data, in this case, institutional admissions rates, can create a false sense of what's really going on. That's because anyone can apply to college, well-qualified or otherwise. Selective colleges immediately toss the long shots and dreamers from the admissions pile in order to concentrate on students with a legitimate shot at getting in. But they don't parse their admission statistics that way. In part, 
because it's in their best interests to seem as selective as possible. The article's affirmations relate to the positive feedback system. The scenario begins with pressure from snowplow parents to apply to the nation's top colleges, as listed by the U.S. News rankings. But, as we know from the article, these statistics are distorted to seem more prestigious. Regardless, this trend of selectivity freaks students out, so they apply to more schools as a safety precaution. However, all this does is further inflate the applicant pools. The New York Times furthers to pinpoint the toxic consequence of these distorted statistics. In essence, the growth in applications per student creates a vicious cycle, causing admission rates at the best schools to artificially decline, students to become more anxious, and the number of applications per student to grow even more. That's why some students are applying to 20 or more schools to increase their odds of making a single match. The most important elite college admission statistic, then, is not the percentage of applications top schools accept. It's the percentage of top students who are admitted to at least one top school. And that number is 80%. The New York Times deserves a thank you from all of us because it has debunked the misconception about college selectivity that stresses many students. The issue discredited is something I like to call application inflation. This inflation happens because schools, despite continuing to take the same type and amount of students as they were a couple decades ago, have a widened proportion of applicants to admittees that mathematically drops their acceptance rate. This inflation is the reason students criticize the college admissions process for being too selective, stressing out over statistics that don't represent reality. What is the reality is the fact that colleges are playing the system to elevate their status at the cost of misinforming the public. There is a bright side, however, to this manipulated reality. The fact that it is false. If we inform others about the untrustworthiness of these distorted facts, their worries will subdue and their eyes will be opened to the actual admissions trend of the 21st century. Holistic Analysis With holistic analysis, colleges do not just take test scores and grades into consideration. A student still has a chance of getting admitted with an out-of-range score as long as they can prove they have alternative strengths. Colleges are looking at your whole life picture, both in and out of school, to figure out the kind of person you are rather than the person your numerical test score claims you are. They want to build communities with students of various talents and backgrounds so they can learn from each other's strengths and weaknesses. I tried reaching out to the University of Miami about their holistic application process but as I plan on applying there later in 2020, they declined an interview due to a conflict of interest. However, throughout the course of the year, I have visited many colleges and taken their tours. These tours start with an informational session by a lead admissions officer. As these presentations were given, I had a notepad in hand jotting down key points. 
one message reigns superior at every single info session. Colleges are turning to a more holistic approach. This includes private universities like the University of Miami and New York University, public state schools like the University of North Carolina, and esteemed practically Ivy League institutions like Duke and Vanderbilt. I even have a local example of the trends these professionals are referring to. Madison Mutzman is a freshman at the University of Miami for the 2019-2020 school year. Before college, she went to Cooper City High and lived in Davie, Florida. I interviewed her to hear her personal account of her college admissions process. Um, my college admissions process was not the easiest, but also not the hardest. Looking back, what would you change about how you handled the process? Could someone or something have made this process easier or less stressful? I definitely would have tried to finish all my applications before October because I was going through a lot during October with a project I was working on in school. So having that on top of college applications definitely started becoming very stressful and I was not able to focus on both of them really at the same time. So I would definitely try and get my applications done before October. Do you think that there was anything that you overthought or like you put too much effort into? Um, probably some of the schools I was applying to, like for UCF and USF, they don't have as much as some of the other um, college applications need. So I probably overthought some of the things I added to theirs and I could have gotten those done way before I did. Yeah, that's that's definitely something that a lot of students have to experience. So. Being so experienced, what advice do you have for future students applying to college? Definitely, if you haven't taken your SAT or ACT and you know and you don't know which one you're strong at, figure out which one you're stronger at first. I did it. I started with the SAT and I ended up being stronger at the ACT. And if I had started with the ACT, I probably would have even had a higher score than I finished with. And also, like, just work really hard to finish your college apps. Ask for help. Madison's account is important because it clears the air about many misconceptions about the workload of the college admissions process. Madison is not out to make herself seem like a genius. She admits the process was time-consuming and even challenging at times. She also identifies her own mistakes to guide others as to how they can ensure a smoother process. But overall, she understands that in the same way that a homework assignment can be difficult, the college application process was just another hurdle in her life that she needed to assess and complete. Something else interesting about Madison is her atypically healthy outlook on the process as a whole. Perhaps being able to reflect from a distance helped her realize that her high school self was exaggerating the strain of the situation. She certainly is a role model, though, as we should strive to adopt her optimism and tranquility. But asking people to just be optimistic is understandably challenging. No fear. Madison's story can help further convince us that our emissions-related stress is futile. That's because she's living proof of the leniency of admissions officers.
We get pamphlet after pamphlet in the mail touting each college's premier median score ranges, not realizing that these high numbers are meant to attract students into believing that the college is highly esteemed, rather than serve as 100% representations of reality. UM's median SAT range, as listed on their official website, is 1350 to 1480. And while that may be true, Madison still got in with a 1210 on her SAT. A's and B's in a mix of honors and AP courses, and a few extracurriculars she was passionate about. And Madison's not an exception. She's an average South Floridian girl, going to a public school, applying to college just like anyone else. She got in for her unique strengths, without a top test score. And here's why: median literally means middle value. So while UM and similar universities may only choose to highlight their strong middle values, they have a wide range of students getting in, below and above that ballpark. See, middle value doesn't mean most frequent value or minimum score for entry. It simply means it is in the middle range out of all admitting scores. Unfortunately. Many students open the pamphlets to the standardized test range page, see a number higher than their score, and automatically move on to another college. They are misinformed about the true meaning of median. Colleges don't bother to make that clear on purpose to help boost their prestigious status. But what we can learn from this is that average students. Can get into colleges that boast their selectivity because, at the heart of it all, colleges are just trying to build an engaged, wholehearted community. Now. Even with these holistic trends, competition still exists on a nationwide scale. The fact of the matter is that you will not get into every college you apply to, and you may have to settle for a school that your friends deem, eh. We tend to overlook that it is the person who makes their success happen, not the school. We are the vehicles of our potential, and it is with our resilience and skill. That we can rise to the top, no matter if our diploma reads Harvard or Broward Community College. So, before this episode comes to a close, I want to reassure you: it's the person that makes success happen, not the school. We are so consumed with the idea that Ivy Leagues equate to instant success that we overlook the facts that disprove that. Modern-day success stories prove that it's not where you go to college; it's how you utilize the experience and what you make of your life. The idea of success, though, is complicated, because everyone has their own metric of success. For some, it's financial; for others, it's happiness and fulfillment. Some are looking to be employed by a top company in their field. And others just want to know 
they will be secure enough to freely raise a family. There are examples worldwide that voice the same message. Where you go to college does not define what you can do in the aftermath. Here are some examples of what this success might look like. From the Washington Post and CNN, we see cover stories of famous people who made it without a fancy diploma. The Post reports this striking fact. Among the American-born chief executives of the top 100 companies in the Fortune 500, just about 30 went to an Ivy League school or equally selective college. The Post also name-drops Bob Iger, former CEO of Disney, who graduated from Ithaca College without a master's degree, and Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks, who went to Northern Michigan University. CNN adds to the conversation as well. Even if we're talking about traditional notions of success, an elite university is not a prerequisite. Many rich, famous, and powerful people went to small colleges you likely have never heard of. Ronald Reagan went to Illinois' Eureka College. David Letterman went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. Tom Hanks went to Chabot College in Hayward, California, and George Lucas went to Modesto Junior College in California. And it's not just famous people. Everyday citizens like you and me have made it without attending an Ivy League or equivalent. Mr. Alec Mueller, the NSU University School College Counselor we heard from earlier this episode, tells the story of a friend of his who went to an unheard of small college. Listen in to hear him describe the situation. The reality is there are people out have, who have these fascinating, interesting careers and lives who have gone to colleges that nobody's Absolutely. heard of. The whole time I lived in Washington, D.C., which is just such an epicenter of you know, fascinating and powerful people, one of the most interesting folks I had the pleasure to interact with there during my time there had gone to a college that I hadn't heard of. And you know, <laughs> I have personally counselor. been on over 500 college campuses in my career from you know, all over the, the world. And when he told me where he went, I was like, where is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And he had, had um, these uh, advanced degrees and spoke four or five different languages and had his own company advising um, international companies on you know, how to oh, build wow. marketing stuff. And I sang in this chorus and like played the oboe. And I mean, he just was like, what don't, don't you do? Um, and he had gone to a college that this somebody had not heard of anyway. Which, which just goes to show how these um, pressures from our peers are really so impactful because it's very clear that really any education, if you are a hard worker, you can kind of make it happen and there's just this societal pressure. <laughs> and I can keep going. My own life exemplifies how a family can live happily without fancy degrees. My parents went to the University of Miami. Please note that times have changed, and not only has the school grown in reputation, but also in price. At the time, UM was considered fine, to be frank. Yet, my parents have three children, jobs, a house, can put food on the table, travel occasionally, and just all around enjoy life. My parents have simply raised an average family in Florida, but for them, it's all they could ever ask for. 
success is in the eye of the beholder. So as long as you find your way, meet your people, and make use of the resources offered to you, you can find happiness. Yet social media platforms, teenagers in the lunchroom, and even teachers in the classroom tell a different tale. They're all constantly emphasizing that esteemed colleges are the key to success. What ends up happening is the positive feedback system comes into play. Yes, we're back to that. Are we even surprised anymore? When students and communities believe high GPAs are necessary for collegiate and workplace success, teachers find that the only way to motivate their students is not with an intrinsic desire to learn, but rather with the prospect of getting good grades. So, school becomes a game for the most points in the gradebook, rather than a learning environment for students to explore their interests. I just said game but I think an even better word would be race. An arms race, to be exact. I briefly introduced this concept in episode one, and next week's episode will spend its entirety on the subject. However, I will touch on it now to get the ball rolling for next episode. In an arms race, people compete for superiority. The United States versus the Soviet Union, predator versus prey, Student versus student. Wait, what? Yeah, that's right. Student versus student. The competition that defines high schools across America. When students buy into the idea that elite college admission is necessary to succeed, they ruthlessly compete to be the top of their class, often at the cost of the well-being of others and themselves. This fosters resentment and stress in communities. What we really need is a disarmament of students, an end to our competitive culture. But the thing is, those who are first to disarm are vulnerable until the entire community follows suit. However, one way we can take small steps toward the bigger picture of disarmament is through awareness. Even if we're not ready to give in, at least we will know the truth. If we just spread awareness about the truth of the college admissions process, that any school can produce successful people, then student stress could reduce drastically as they would be confident in their abilities. They would know that their success is based not on the university they attend, but on their own actions. And little by little, they would go from accepting that fact to implementing it in their decisions. And that's something worth taking strides for. Even if we know that the college admissions process is a product of social perceptions, understanding how to fix that will take more than just a snap of our fingers. That's why you can tune in next week as we compare the college admissions process to arms races throughout history, allowing us to break down the process by relating it to events we already understand. We can use these similar arms races to pinpoint solutions and prevent history from repeating itself.
This has been Episode 3, Difficulty Debunked, and I'm Hannah Cooker. Special thanks to Miss Ann Sellers, Mr. Michael Oligmuller, Madison Mutzman, Ali Rodman, Rachel Z, Sivan Ben-David, Sophia Echeverry, and Veronica Bloomberg. Thanks for listening!